We're going to turn again to God's Word, uh, this time in 1 Kings 19. Um, We skipped some verses at the end of chapter 18. We didn't read it. Um, The the people realize and confess that the Lord is God, and Elijah goes and prays for rain. He had to pray for a long time. He sent his servant seven times to see if there was even a single cloud in the sky. But eventually, uh, the Lord sends rain. And so we pick up the story again at the beginning of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, Get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled for forty days and forty nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they are trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then, A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I am the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said to him, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. When you get there, anoint Hazael king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel, and anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Hazael, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal, and whose mouths have not kissed him. This is God's word for us tonight. Some things in life aren't particularly complicated, but they're still difficult. 
Even though a task might be be simple to understand, we still mightn't find it easy. I'll give you an example. Now, it's not quite Marty and his golf, but as some of you know in the past, I used to play a lot of indoor bowls. It's an easier game than golf. It's a really simple game. You, You roll your bowl along the carpet and you try and get as close to that little yellow ball as you can, the jack. You have to get closer than your opponent does. Not complicated, but not easy. It's a difficult skill to master. Don't throw it too hard, don't throw it too lightly. Don't throw it too far to the left or to the right. Don't throw it off the mat. Throw it in the right direction and at the right speed and it'll get to the jack. Not complicated, but difficult, believe me. Another game I love to play, and you might not know this about me, is darts. Darts isn't complicated either. I like simple games. You have to score 501 points before your opponent does. Now you have to score exactly 501. You have to finish on a double, which is one of the colored segments around the outside, but it's not complicated. Stand up and try and score more than the other fellow or the other lady. It's not complicated, but it's hard. It's hard because I'm standing eight feet away from the board and the target that I'm trying to hit is only eight millimeters, about a third of an inch high the treble 20, which is the thing you probably want to hit. It's not complicated, but it's hard. Now, during the lockdown earlier this year, many of us joined together in a little book club online, and we read a little book together by Gary Miller called Need to Know. And here's what Gary says in that book. Living as a Christian is actually really simple. It is hard, but it's not complicated. We know what we're meant to do as a Christian. We understand that we're sinners and we need a savior. We get what Jesus has done for us. We've responded to it. And so we know God and have life with him forever. We get that. And so we wake up every morning in the light of that. And we live in the light of that message or we try to in a way that pleases God. It's not complicated, but it's hard. It's Romans 7 from this morning all over again. I know the things that I should do, but the things I should do are the things I don't do, and the things I shouldn't do, well, they're the things I end up doing. I know it, I get it, it's simple, but it's hard to do. And it's hard, I think, for two main reasons. Some of the hardship is self-inflicted. It's like the dart that isn't thrown straight and true, or the bowl that we just threw off the side of the mat. We mess up. We're inclined to sin. That's one thing that makes the Christian life hard. But there are other things that aren't necessarily self-inflicted, things that are out of control, like the dart that gets thrown straight and true, but it deflects off another dart in the board and goes into another target. Or the bowl that you throw really well, right speed, right direction, but it rolls over a bump on the floor, or it hits somebody else's bowl that was in the way, how inconsiderate. And so it doesn't make it to the jack. Sometimes following Jesus is hard because of circumstances outside of our control and it makes life difficult for us. And we can have real low moments in our faith, moment when God seems less real to us, moments when we don't feel close to him, moments when we're discouraged. Maybe the lockdown brings that for some of us. And as we come tonight to these two chapters in 1 Kings, I think we see these two realities played out. Now, the events are obviously very dramatic. There's this great standoff on Mount Carmel, fire falling from the heavens and all the rest of it. But actually, I think at the heart of it, we see these two truths that God's people have faced for all time. The people are confronted with their sin. They've gone away from God. And then in chapter 19, things don't go well for Elijah and he becomes really discouraged. 
So I think there's much for us in these chapters tonight. Now, it's a fantastic story. It's got everything, especially if you're a bit of a kid at heart. It's got this standoff. It's got an underdog who wins, Elijah, against these 450 prophets of Baal. It's got a contest. It's got killing. It's even got a bit of toilet humor. Maybe you spotted it. Call him louder, Elijah taunts. Maybe he's asleep or on the toilet. It's brilliant, especially for those of us who are still a bit of a teenage boy at heart. But as much as the story might entertain us or grip us, there's so much in it to guide us as we follow Jesus, as we face up to our sin, and as we try to navigate life's circumstances, which can make following Jesus very difficult. And the first thing the passage does is that it hits us right between the eyes with our sin. And it says, what are you going to do about it? What will you do about it? After Elijah gathers all the people, he lays it on the line to them. He says in verse 21, how long will you waver? Literally, how long will you limp between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. The Israelites were caught up in the worship of Baal and Asherah. Now, we thought last week about how they turned away from his word and listened to other influences, and that's fine, but we didn't think very specifically about what their sin actually was. The people are knee-deep in idolatry. And so at the heart of 1 Kings 18 is more than a standoff between two altars. It is that, but it's more. At the heart of 1 Kings 18 is a challenge to all of us about the sin of idolatry. We thought a fair bit about this topic when we went through the book of Daniel, so I'm not going to cover all of that ground again. You maybe remember that quote that Marty showed us from John Calvin, that the human heart is the factory of idols. And it's true, all through history, the human heart does love a bit of idolatry. Now, it's less obvious today than it used to be, because back in ancient Israel, it was pretty obvious you knew that you were worshiping an idol. Baal was god of the rain, supposedly, and of fertility. Actually, he was a male god, so I suppose we might say potency rather than fertility. And Asherah, whom Israel also worshiped, was the female god of fertility. But by and large, you knew what you were doing. You knew that you were worshiping an idol because you had it in your hand in front of you. You were doing these rituals around it. You knew what you were doing when you were worshiping an idol. But we like to think of ourselves as a good deal more sophisticated than that, don't we? But it's all still there. Baal was the god of the rain. What would the rain bring? Crops. What would crops bring? Well, I suppose they would feed you, but um, from what we know about Baal worship, the idea was that you prayed for rain to get crops to make lots and lots of money. At the root of Baal worship, the real God was money. I suspect you don't need me to spell out how money is still an idol today, that many of us are tempted to put it as first thing. So let's not be fooled into thinking that we are more sophisticated or clever or morally superior to these Israelites. The God they were tempted to worship is a God that we are tempted to worship too. The other side of things with Baal and Asherah was sexual potency and fertility. Basically, sex is the idol. And if you don't believe that sex is an idol today, then I suspect that you live in a cave somewhere. Just turn on your TV and you'll see it. It's exploded on the internet in our generation in a way that probably makes it more of an idol today than it ever was in the past. And the message is, is that this is what you need to be happy, that this is fulfillment. 
Now, sex is a great gift from God, but it's a lie to say that it can take the place of God, that it can fulfill us like he can. It can't. And fertility, even weirdly today, is still an idol, particularly the the control of fertility. Some people think that um, even if that means aborting a healthy pregnancy, that they want control, complete control over fertility. It's still an idol today. And I don't think we take idolatry seriously enough, and I think we need to realize the place it can claim in all of our lives. And the great danger is whether, whatever idol it is, whether it's sex or money or anything else, is that it slips in alongside our worship of God. That's what happened to the people of Israel. They worshiped Yahweh, the Lord. Then they started to worship all these other gods too because they felt that they had something to offer. And it's the dangerous thing that happens to us. And it's actually what the world sort of subtly tries to do to us as well. Oh yeah, you you can believe in Jesus, that's fine. At church and in your family, no problem. But in business or politics or the workplace where it might impact on other people who would disagree with you, no, 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 no. Different rules apply. God doesn't belong in those spheres. Faith belongs in your personal life. And so whether we inflict it on ourselves by slipping into idolatry or whether we casually accept what the world says about faith not belonging in certain areas of our lives, we can very quickly end up with divided loyalties. We want to worship God and something else. And I don't know about you, but as I've prepared this week, I've just grown more and more uncomfortable about all of this because I think we stand in the shoes of those Israelites on Mount Carmel far more often than we might think. And here's what God has to say to us about it. Through his prophet Elijah, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Of course, Baal isn't God, so Elijah is effectively saying, deal with your sin. Don't waver between sin and God. Deal with your sin and follow God. But we see sin's danger here. Not only does it compete with God in our lives, it warps our view of God. It doesn't just sit alongside our worship of God, it affects it. It overtakes God in our thinking. Did you notice that that happened to Ahab? In verse 17, when he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Now Ahab is quite clearly blaming Elijah for the drought. His sin has been exposed, he worships Baal, God announces a drought, his sin is exposed, but the sin has overtaken Ahab. No, no, he, can't, he doesn't accept that that could be the truth. No, that can't be it, I, I can't be wrong. It's not my sin that's caused this drought, it, it's that Elijah one. He, he said that Yahweh is the only God in Israel, and that must have made Baal angry, and that meant that Baal didn't send the rain. Yeah, yeah, that's it, it's his fault. Ahab's sin has been exposed, but his response is to become more entrenched in the sin, to make excuses, to blame somebody else. And he's so confident that when Elijah sets this challenge before him, bring all the people of Israel here, bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, bring them, Ahab does it. He's so confident that he's going to win. But it gets him nowhere, and it will get us nowhere either. That's one danger of slipping into idolatry, that, that we make excuses for it, that we convince ourselves that we're, we're okay. Another danger, though, is to do nothing about it, and this is what the people do. Elijah calls out their sin. If the Lord is God, follow him, he says. And what happens at the end of verse 21? We read, but the people said nothing. 
And that's often the case with our sin when we see it. We don't want to deal with it. We know it will be hard. We know it will be a battle. Marty was saying that this morning. We kind of expect if you you put something to death that it will fight back. So we just do nothing about it. We believe the lie that we can do both things, to keep doing what we're doing and worship God too. Sure, we don't have to choose. God knows we love him, so that'll be fine, all right? I don't need to deal with it. But their silence is an answer. They remain silent, and the author of Kings actually does something really clever here. It's clearer in the Hebrew, but there's a big parallel between their silence and the silence that comes from Baal when his prophets call. In other words, their decision to remain silent is a decision to remain in their sin. They don't see the big deal. They can worship two gods, and we do the same so often. We don't want the pain of dealing with our sin. We don't want to give up watching this or indulging in that. We we, we don't want the argument with people we disagree with. We like having money as our other God because it gives us a good life. Whatever it is, we live with our sin. But this is foolish. Sin is dangerous. The apostle James says, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Every time God says something to us about sin through his word, how do we respond to it? Because our silence, our inaction is an answer. I think I see this in two big ways in church. One is what I've been talking about. Christians who allow sin to creep in, who allow idolatry to become part of their lives, and they see it, maybe they listen to a sermon like this one, or maybe as God speaks to them through the word in another place, maybe in their own devotion, but they don't see the seriousness of it, and so they remain silent. They do nothing about it. Friends, if the Lord is laying it on your heart tonight, do not be silent. We need to hear James's warning. Sin is disastrous. We need to deal with it, because if we let it fester, then it will lead us in a direction that is not Godward. We will grieve the Spirit. We won't produce His fruit in our lives. We will live in disobedience to God. If the Lord is God, follow Him. And the second way I think we see it is equally troubling, if not more so, and that is people who sit in church who have never dealt with their sin. In my home congregation, the previous minister retired a few years ago, and he'd been minister for 27 years there. And when he retired, one of the things that he said was that what bothered him most was that there were people in the church who had sat there Sunday after Sunday for all those years and had never responded to the gospel. They knew it inside out. They didn't need it explained to them again. But for one reason or another, they didn't follow. Maybe some loved the world too much. Oh, if I became a Christian, I'd have to give up, whatever. So they live on with divided loyalties, having some knowledge of God, but not following him. Others maybe felt that they weren't up to the task. Others were, were just maybe comfortable where they were. I, I quite like my churchy life, but I don't wanna take it too seriously. My life's quite nice. But friends, if that is you tonight, then please do not be silent in your response to the Lord's call because you also need to heed the warning of the word of God. Allowing the sin, the place of God in your life, that leads to death. Your sitting in church won't save you. You need to deal with your sin. If the Lord is God, follow him. There's a curious thing that happens um, from time to time. Every week um, when I go to prepare a sermon, I I basically do two things. 
One is that I, I read the Word of God. I, I try to get my head around everything that's going on in, in the Bible passage that I'm to preach on. But if that was all that I did, well then what you'd end up with at the end of the week would be a lecture, just some sort of academic notion about what the, what the text says. So the other thing that I have to do alongside that is to think, well, what does this mean? What does this mean for the people who are gonna be sitting in front of me on a Sunday morning or on a Sunday evening? And, and, and that's basically what happens when you go to prepare. And really interestingly, this week, Marty did that and I did that. Marty was looking at a piece of the New Testament. I was looking at a piece of the Old Testament. And when I was sitting up there this morning listening to Marty preach, I thought, I was gonna say that. I was gonna say that too. Marty, would you stop saying all the things that I'm gonna say later? Marty, stop! And it's really interesting that we were looking at very different places in the Bible, but we both came to this topic about how we deal with our sin. And I don't know about you, maybe Marty and I should just communicate better during the week. I'll, I'll hold up my hands on, on that one, but. I suspect that as, as we do this task, we believe that God speaks to us through the word. And I believe that the spirit of God works in us as we prepare, even despite, despite me sometimes. And if the spirit of the Lord wants to say something to us twice in one day, then we should probably sit up and pay attention. It's probably quite important how we deal with our sin. Now, I'm not pointing the finger at anybody in particular tonight. I wouldn't dare do that because I am somebody who needs to put sin to death in my life as much or likely more than all of you sitting here. But this is the way of God. This is what has happened. How do we deal with sin? Well, it's a work of God. Elijah makes sure that the people are going to see that. He sets up this great challenge. Now, it's him against 450 prophets of Baal. He is the underdog of all underdogs. He lets them have their first choice of bull. He lets them go first. He even gets them to pour water three times onto his altar so that it's really unlikely, even if fire does come, it's really unlikely that his altar will catch fire. The people agree to this contest. Why do they agree to this idea of fire falling from the sky? Well, they haven't completely forgotten their history. The burning bush, the, the, the fire that guards the way to the tree of life, the pillar of smoke by day and a fire at night that brought their ancestors through the wilderness, the fire that fell on Solomon's temple a few years before, they know that whoever's fire gets lit, that God's the real deal. And Elijah wants the people to see that dealing with this issue really is an act of God. That's why he stacks the odds well in his opponent's favor. That's why he highlights that human effort, this sort of cutting of themselves and dancing that the prophets of Baal go through, that it will come to nothing. Only the Lord will answer. Baal cannot answer. That's why Elijah prays the way he does. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. It's an act of God that deals with with sin. And so the fire of God falls and burns the sacrifice, the wet wood, the stones and the soil, everything, it dries up the water in the trench. It's an act of God that deals with the sin of the people and turns them back to God. And if you've been challenged tonight to deal with the sin in your life, then you need to know that the way that we do that is not of ourselves, but it's through an act of God. And the act of God that we trust is not of falling fire, but it did come from heaven in the form of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
He died on the cross to take the punishment for our sins. That bull on that altar, on that hill, on Mount Carmel, God accepted that as a sacrifice to him, but that bull could not ultimately pay for anyone's sins. But it was accepted by God because it pointed to the one who can. And if you need to deal with your sin tonight, whether for the first time or whether you need to do it afresh, you do it by looking to Jesus and following him and trusting that what he has done on the cross has saved you from your sin and brought you back to the Lord so that you can truly respond to the call. If the Lord is God, follow him. We do the same if it's not for the first time, it's if it's for the 10,000th time. We look to the cross, we see Jesus, we trust that what he has done has saved us and brought us back to God. And we get up again and we respond to that call. If the Lord is God, follow him. And because he rose from the grave, we share in his victory over death. And we have a part in that eternal life even now because he has given us the Holy Spirit. We thought about it that a bit this morning and we'll do some more next Sunday morning online. But it is the Spirit who allows us to live lives that continually then deal with sin, that allow us to turn around. We don't take our sins away, but we're called to turn from them and the Spirit empowers us to do that. Notice that Elijah, who was one who had, the word of the God, who had the word of the Lord, he was full of the Holy Spirit. What he did to the prophets of Baal, he had them slaughtered. Now we might think, Elijah, that's a bit overdramatic, isn't it? But Elijah is actually obeying the word of God in Deuteronomy 13, that prophets who turn the people away from the Lord should be put to death. And we might think that's grim, but that's what we have to do with our sin. We only think it's grim because we don't recognize the seriousness of our sin. Sin needs to be dealt with. It needs to be put to death. Here's what Paul says. We saw these words this morning in Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. In this life as Christians, we are often confronted with our own sin. And the word of God calls us not to be silent in those moments, not to do nothing, but to deal with our sin, to trust in Jesus and what he has done to take our sins away, but to live in the power of the Spirit as we turn away from those sin and live as followers of God. You see, the Spirit always points us to Jesus. And so there it is the Spirit that empowers us to act, to turn away from our sin, because we do so as we look to Jesus and follow him. That's the, the weird thing, that, that Jesus takes our sins away, but we have a role to play. But the role we have is empowered by the Spirit looking to Christ. But of course, the other area that can make the Christian life complicated is not just when we sin and when our sin confronts us, but when we get discouraged. That discouragement might come as the result of sin. It might just come through life's circumstances. It might come as a result of these lockdown measures. What a spiritual high Elijah must have been on to win this great standoff, to go and serve God the way he was called to do and to see the fruit of that, to see people start turning back to God. And then he prays for rain and it doesn't happen straight away, but he's consistent in prayer and the Lord answers. Maybe you've known times like that in your life when you see God answering prayer, when you feel really close to God, when he does something in your life, it's a great thing. But the reality is that it can change. Sometimes we don't feel that way. We don't have a drive to, to read the word or to pray or to come to church. We don't feel close to God. We get discouraged. 
We used to have that high, but it's gone now. This happens to Elijah. Amazingly, after all that's happened, it happens to him. He's a prophet, but he's a human being just like us. What happens is that Jezebel threatens to kill him. Here's what we read. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Which is a mouthful which says, I'm going to kill you. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. In a way, Elijah's circumstances haven't actually changed that much. Jezebel was already killing the Lord's prophets. You can read that at the start of chapter 18. But this time, Elijah is afraid of Jezebel, and he runs away. I don't want to come down too hard on Elijah tonight because he has just been threatened. But there are a number of things going on here that I think we can probably relate to. Elijah loses his perspective. He's just been on a great spiritual high, but then what happens is that he loses sight of it. Sometimes that happens to us. Sometimes we can be on a spiritual high, and, but in that moment, we lose sight of the fact that we're in a battle against sin. Elijah seems to lose sight of the fact that he's in the battle. He just sees one side, the scary side, and he becomes afraid. Elijah also loses his commitment to follow God's word. If you were here last week, I put a slide up at one point which showed the five times in the previous chapter, in chapter 17, that the word of the Lord is mentioned. Elijah proclaims the word of the Lord to Ahab. The word of the Lord sends Elijah into the desert and then provides for him. It sends him to the widow and her son and then again it provides for him. But here in chapter 19, it's not mentioned in the early verses. He doesn't allow the word to direct him. Without any word from the Lord, he runs away when he hears a threat from Jezebel. Happens to us, doesn't it? We, we, we lose a passion for the word. We don't turn it to it when life throws something hard at us. Elijah loses his vision of God's greatness. Even though he's just seen it in a really dramatic way, this event knocks him down. He forgets. It's a really strange thing we go through, but we do. We have these spiritual highs, and then sometimes we just completely don't feel it. And we forget what it was like. And then Elijah is completely drained physically and emotionally. He's disappointed. He might have expected a revival after the events on Mount Carmel. And while people did turn back to God, if we read on in Kings, it didn't have the effect that you might think it would have. Elijah becomes isolated. He leaves his servant behind and then goes a few days journey alone into the desert. And that is neither healthy nor wise. And he believes half-truths. He thinks he's the only prophet left. Now, he is marginalized, but he's not the only prophet left. And so it leads him to self-pity, to self-righteousness. I'm the only one. I'm the only faithful one. And to self-importance. And it leads him to say, I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. Now, hopefully we don't sink that low. And if you ever do, please, please reach out to me or, or to Marty or to a Christian you can trust. But I think we can all experience the kind of draining effect that this has when we're discouraged and low in our faith. But there are a number of things that happened to Elijah that I think can encourage us tonight and a number of practical things we can do too. We don't have time to go into the, this great vision that he sees. But one thing we can do is at times like this, we can allow ourselves not to become isolated. Trying to do this walk of faith thing alone 
It's a real temptation at times because when we're struggling, we, we think we can't tell anyone. We think it makes us look bad or weak. But that kind of thinking is a sin in itself because it's pride that I have to look good and appear a certain way. But you'll find if you take a Christian with you on that journey, you can share the burden. You'll find very quickly that you're not the only one who isn't perfect as you follow Jesus. About five years ago now, I was leading a mission team overseas, and one of the team members who was a young Christian guy took me aside at one point and said to me, you know, John, I've been wanting to speak to you. I haven't had the courage yet, but I don't know how to say this, but I've really been struggling in my walk with the Lord. I've been facing a lot of temptation and I've been watching a lot of pornography. Now, I won't go into all the details, but, but what that did for him was not only a huge relief, but it meant that he was no longer facing that battle alone. He actually told more than just me over the, a, a period of time. So he found himself with a group of people around him who were praying for him, checking in on him, walking this road with him. And suddenly he wasn't facing the temptation alone. When temptation came along, he, he had people he could reach out to. It didn't stop the temptation cropping up, but it changed everything for him. His whole mood, the way, the way he used to beat himself up about it, the way he used to carry the burden alone. And it transformed his relationship with the Lord. We're meant to carry one another's burdens. God gave Elijah an angel at first and then a companion in Elisha. I know it might be difficult in another short lockdown, but make the effort. Pick up the phone if it's what you need to do. Whether it's because of a sin or whether it's just because you're feeling low in your walk with the Lord, don't walk the road of spiritual discouragement alone. We're not meant to. Another practical thing we can do is to make sure we're physically well as, as much as it's in our control. Make sure that we eat well. The angel fed Elijah. Make sure that we're all rested up. The Lord knows that we need these things and it's no surprise that when the world runs us ragged, we can struggle in our walk with the Lord. Do what you need to do to unwind. Make sure you take all your holidays from work and be off. Don't, don't just work on through it. Don't exhaust yourself at home. Eat don't skip meals in the busyness of life. Look after yourself physically. It'll help your spiritual health too. And I suppose the final thing I want to say is that we need to keep in touch with the Lord. It, it might sound so obvious, but I don't think it's insignificant that as Elijah is restored it, through all this time, even as he's disappointed, he never stops talking to God. Even if it's complaining, even if some of the things aren't quite right, he never stops talking to God. There's nothing that you need more in moments of spiritual discouragement than to speak to the one who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, and rich in faithful love for you. And as we do that, we realize that he can give us spiritual rest. Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. When you've had enough, you need to come to Jesus because he is enough. And what you might find might not be dramatic Mount Carmel style fire from heaven. For Elijah in this moment, it's a whisper. It's a still small voice telling him that God is faithful, that he hasn't forgotten his promises, that he will keep a remnant for himself, that Elijah is to go and anoint some people as a part of that. And as we come to Jesus, we hear that still small voice reminding us that we are loved and cherished, and accepted, and forgiven, and that nothing the world throws at us can change that, and that he still has a purpose for us 
in the here and now as his followers. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks that you are faithful even when we are faithless. Lord, we know in this life that we sin often and we lose sight of you and can become discouraged in following you. We praise you that by your power and grace, you keep us and you give us all we need to follow Jesus. Thank you for sending him into the world and thank you that he obeyed all the way to the cross for us. Help us to embrace the power you offer through the Holy Spirit as we face all kinds of opposition to faith in him for his sake. Amen.